0: Welcome to Tech Explorations podcast, episode one. This episode comes in three parts. I hope that small 15 to 20 minute episodes will make it easier for you to listen to our podcast. Please let us know what you think. In this first part of episode one, Peter Murrays talks with George Katz. George has been making things ever since he can remember. As a child, he used to make paper models of all kinds of things until his parents bought him a two-transistor radio kit. From that point, he was interested in all things electronic. He studied electronics in high school and later completed his degree in computer engineering from the University of New South Wales. He enjoyed the course because it combined electronics with software and so that computers would interact with the real world. There, he also became interested in robotics and built a number of research robots for his thesis and for the AI department for other students to use. After university, his day job was on developing software for various companies, but electronics remained his hobby. About 13 years ago, he saw an episode of Mythbusters that featured water rockets. Searching online, he discovered a whole world of DIY makers that made rockets and posted instructions on how to do that. George talked to his father and within three hours they built a launcher and launched the first rocket in the backyard. From that point on, the whole family was hooked on building ever more complex and higher performing rockets. They also joined the local rocketry club, NSWRA, which opened a whole new world of like-minded individuals with a lot of experience in the field to learn from. To this day, George and his family still very much enjoy the engineering challenge of building and flying rockets. He uses his electronics knowledge for rocketry payloads and ground launch equipment. Though he occasionally does flight solid propellant rockets, his passion still is building water rockets. Both of George's teenage boys are also a great help with all aspects of the hobby. George shares his experience as much as possible online and runs a website with instructional videos as well as launch and experiment reports. The website contains many of the hard to find details about water rockets so that others can learn from his successes and mistakes the same way people shared their knowledge with him when he started out. This is Tech Explorations Podcast Episode 1 Part 1. In this first part, George introduces himself and talks about his years in university. In part two, George talks about water rocket hardware. We go through the most important components of a water rocket and the engineering process of finding what works and what doesn't. We also talk about the origin and the evolution of Air Command water rockets. Finally, in part three, George talks about his experiences from Thunder 2019, Australia's premier rocketry event, and about rocketry clubs. The Tech Explorations podcast is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. No surprises there. My mission is to share the stories of makers and learn from them. I simply want to explore why and how makers do what they do. Let's welcome George and hear his story now. George Katz, very happy to see you on a
1: Tech Explorations podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Hopefully this will be an interesting conversation. Well, based on
0: uh, a few things that we discussed already as we were warming up for this, uh, I think we are going to have a very interesting conversation. Um, Well, before actually we get to the really, really cool stuff, or actually maybe I should say hot stuff, let's talk a little bit about you and maybe you could give us an an introduction. And I should uh, say to people that are watching us on YouTube or on video that unfortunately you don't have a webcam that's working, so we'll do the next best thing and put your picture on (laughs) so that people know who you are and what you look like. So there you go. Uh, Could you take a few minutes and tell us about yourself and um, what led you to where you are now? And actually, what do you do now?
1: Okay. Um, So basically, ever since I can remember, I've been interested in making things. Uh, When I was young, I used to make things out of sort of paper, made paper models of all sorts of things. And then one day, mum and dad bought me this two transistor radio kit. Uh, It had springs to join wires together. And I put this together in about half an hour and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I can hear music out of just a few bits. And that's really what kicked me off in getting interested in electronics. Um, And so I persisted with that uh, through high school. We had a really good electronics teacher. Uh, Sort of my interest grew more and more. More, I steered more towards sort of the digital electronics. I was Mm. interested in computers, getting computers to do things at that time. And then uh, I ended up doing a computer engineering degree at University of New South Wales. Uh, And that was uh, also a great course because it sort of married both software and hardware. Um, Sort of there was a a gap that was identified within sort of the curriculum that that's something that should be taught. Um, And so during that course, I also became interested in robotics. So I started building robots uh, both at home and I ended up building one for my thesis. Uh, and then when I finished my thesis, uh, my supervisor actually um, contracted me to build him another robot for the AI department for other students. So, so that, that was kind of the best of both worlds. I was doing what I wa- wanted to do. Yeah. But the problem was there is, wasn't a lot of sort of work after uh, university to do with robotics or electronics. And sort of, so I steered more towards the software side of things as a software developer. But electronics has always remained my hobby. So I continued that uh, just on my own time. But uh, probably about 13 years ago, uh, I saw an episode of Mythbusters and they were featuring a, a water rocket. And I thought, hmm, this looks pretty interesting. So I um, looked up online and there was all of these people building water rockets They were providing instructions on how to do that. And I, so I called up Dan and says, look, we've got to have a go, we've got to build one of these. And so the next day I went over to dad's workshop and we built within three hours a launcher and we launched our first bottle rocket. And from that day on, we were hooked because of the sort of very simple construction, but the sort of mm-hmm. performance you got out of this thing was, was quite impressive. And from that point on, we just started building ever more complex rockets um, and pushing sort of uh, for higher performance. We were um, building multi-stage rockets And that hasn't really stopped in the last 13 years. So we're now building some sort of really high-end rockets. Uh, I see you're looking at the website. So it's something like the Dark Shadow, um, just in the index at the top. Um, Dark Shadow. There you go. Did you pick Uh, up the name? So this is one we just actually flew a few (laughs) days ago again. Uh, this is a, a high-pressure water rocket, uh, and we ended up setting our new personal best altitude record with this one uh, at uh, two thousand two hundred and sixty-nine cool. feet. So this uh, is your life now. Uh, you th- are th- a This pretty much has taken are... over the entire uh, household, and yeah. <laughs> and all of my f- spare times is uh taken up in in water rockets.
0: What uh, like, what's the title that you go by? It's like oh water rocket engineer? Or... Uh,
1: no, so uh, we've, our team's called Air Command Water Rockets. Um, so that that's what we fly the rockets yeah. under and also what our website is. And what we try and do is we try and share all of the things that we learn, uh, as well as the failures, um, so that others can learn from that. Uh, when we first started, it was uh, really important for us to be able to learn from others. And we thought we'd return some of that knowledge that we've gained over the years. Yeah.
0: I, I was looking through your website, and I noticed that you have full details of the builds. I think Correct. here you've got, uh, let's have a look at the shadow, for example. You've got day by day mm-hmm. uh, what you do. I'll zoom in a little here. So this started the design on the 13th of July, and then, you a piece of the pipes and then you show the workshop process is this Mm. like your workshop or do you go somewhere
1: Uh, to build these that's right so i've pretty much taken over the most of underneath the house in the garage and sort of a couple of workshops that we have there Uh, but we use the website not only to inform other people but it's kind of our logbook as well so if we ever need to go back and see a particular technique how we did something we go back and refer to this material Um, it's your public record that's exactly right
0: um, so maybe um, go back a little bit to your university years. Uh, you mentioned that you, know, you you were into robotics. That's what you wanted to do, and mm-hmm. uh, you loved robotics. Could you tell us a little bit about the robot that you built um, for your uh, supervisor
1: or professor in uh, university? So it was a, a mobile robot. So basically, a, a mobile box. It was equipped with a couple of cameras. So that was used for doing vision research for navigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was really an open platform, so it had a PC at that time um, so that the students could put on uh, any type of software that they wanted, uh, but they didn't have to worry about the hardware. So I, I wrote uh, libraries for them to interface to, to uh, allow them to control oh. the cameras, the, the motion, the sensors, um, and then they would write the algorithms that they wanted uh, on top of that.
0: It was that like, um, based on a Raspberry Pi or something else oh, like no, a PC. No. It was this, this is way before, before the those Raspberry days, right? Pi. Yeah. yeah. So things were um, really hard back then. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, yeah. So the the microcontroller there was uh, 68HC11 um, that controlled all the low level stuff, uh, and it was like I think at 486 at the time running mm-hmm. the 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 software on the robot. So mm-hmm. less less powerful than the Raspberry Pi.
0: Yeah, um, for those days. And the video must have been particularly like challenging to make.
1: Uh, Yeah, so we used like a a thing that was called a video blaster at the time that could uh, digitize video. It was a specialist card, Um, none of this USB type thing that you have these days. Um, Yeah, and and so we basically tried creating an an open platform for them to use. Um,
0: How did that evolve over the years? Did it change once you left or...
1: Um, Um, I I think they used it for maybe two or three years after I had left. And by then, other students were creating other robots. And and the lab itself had maybe a
0: dozen different robots. They've Um, moved on. And then, um, yeah, technology changes really quickly, doesn't it? Like, unless you're there to evolve um, your design with the latest in technology uh, or somebody else does it for you, it just goes away and something else
1: will supersede it. Exactly, exactly. For, for me, it was a good, fun project to work on, so I was what, happy.
0: Uh, out of that project, what did you take with you uh, eventually? And perhaps uh, I wonder how much of that knowledge do you still use in your current projects, like some engineering principles perhaps, uh, technology know-how, prototyping, like it could be very general as well. It doesn't need to be specific on the tech.
1: Um, yeah, so so it was basically uh, problems... Uh, the problem solving that's required to get the electronics to do what you want, Um, you know sensors fail and both today as they did back then. Um, So it was uh, you know how how do you cope with the the variances and it was also the hardware limitation so there were certain things you wanted to do but the hardware just wasn't capable of doing Mm. that so coming up with alternate ways or more optimal ways of using the the existing hardware that you had. So the constraints is was, was a big part of engineering no matter what you do. Exactly, exactly.
0: Um, Constraint management in a way. Uh,
1: uh, one of the um, postgraduate students there and I built another robot and this was for one of his projects and that one was um, a floor cleaning robot but it used uh, an artificial nose to smell where it had already cleaned so so it was, uh, it was quite an interesting one because you had to uh, add camphor to sort of the scrubbing brush so it was for hardwood floors not, yeah. not carpets uh, and it would lay down a scent of uh, camphor and then uh, we got a um, one of those, just a regular crystal without the can, and you could coat it with this special chemical that would um, absorb the camphor and change the frequency. And so uh, so the, the, uh, the sensor was placed pretty close to the ground and then you had a, like a little extraction fan that could suck the air past it. So you could smell if it, th- there had been camphor or not and so it would know where the edge of the trail was, where it would, was actually cleaning. Wow. And uh, I, I remember after we finished the, the project and um, my friend was doing uh, sort of test runs and he would have to scrub the floor each time with alcohol to get rid of the can smell. He says after like three hours, he was ready to pass out from <laughs> just <laughs> the all, of the, all of the fumes. And, yeah. um, it this was partially be, successful, uh, but yeah, it was quite an interesting project. Yeah, uh, because I guess back
0: then the constraint was that, you know, it, it wasn't it wouldn't be... I guess practical to remember the positions or the the path that the robot had
1: taken. Exactly. So you needed some kind of an absolute reference of where you had been and where you hadn't been.
0: It'd literally leave a marker on the floor that would be invisible to the eye. It wouldn't be a visible marker, but it would. Perform the the job or the, the job of a marker. Mm-hmm. Uh, very clever. So that that constraint then made your colleague to think in a way out of the box. And so okay, let's right, use right. A Yeah, it was totally marker. his
1: idea. Was yeah. my idea? I just helped him build the robot. Great, nice. So then, that take um, you move on to
0: uh, software engineering. I yes, a lot of other engineers have done like uh, you almost describe my path. Uh, In a way, I got into teaching right after I finished my electrical engineering degree, uh, which involved a lot of software, uh, both Mm -hmm. teaching and development. And it seems like that happened to you. What kind of software did you write?
1: Um, So uh, I actually worked in this, after I left uni, I worked at the Australian Museum for about Mm -hmm. a year and a half doing interactive displays. Um, And so that was mostly done in C and C++. Uh, And then I moved to the US uh, for about two and a half years. um, And I did game development there for consoles like PlayStation and uh, Sega Saturn at the time. Uh, And that was all pretty much C++ um, development. Then when I came back from from the US, that, that was around 98, Um, I joined a company that did, uh, military simulations. Hmm. So training, um, sailors, how to do their jobs, how to operate equipment. And so we created simulations for them when they didn't have the equipment. Um, and again, most of that was done in C++. So Hmm. probably the last 20 years, C++ had been my development. Um, It's so
0: interesting. Uh, uh, What do you think is C++ becoming more important? As uh, you know microcontrollers are obviously programmed in C plus uh, plus, and they become more accessible to more people, it seems to me that it's a must no language, uh, even if you start uh, with Python. D- uh,
1: de- definitely, although uh, I've kind of moved away. I'm doing a lot of online development now, so mm-hmm. JavaScript has become probably in the last five years, the predominant language I use. But obviously, for specific you know jo- uh, jobs or projects, you have to just adapt to the language, whether it's Python, whether it's C or C, or even assembler. <laughs> Although that's not yeah. that much these days. <laughs> yeah. um, so. Um,
0: so it's going to be a polyglot. Yeah, thing I, I, I don't
1: see C plus sort of sort of continuing to grow to grow in any particular way. I I think things like um, Node.js as Mm. uh, smaller, microcontrollers become more powerful, Um, JavaScript is a much easier uh, language to use um, and develop in. Uh, But obviously, you know, there's specific languages for specific jobs.
0: Yeah. Uh, So you've got to be a polyglot, really. Uh, Even if you're domain where you apply your project where you work on your project is well defined you still need to have skills in more than one programming languages to be able to be uh, effective I'm and totally to the project yep. right that's all for this episode don't forget to listen to part 2 of george's interview where we discuss water rocket hardware The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with George are available on our website, techexplorations.com. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a maker to be our guest? And of course, you can nominate yourself. Please email us at podcast at txpro.com. subscribe to us on itunes by searching for the name of our podcast tech explorations thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time